0: Okay, in Daniel chapter number nine, last week we covered down to about verse number 19, and what we've been looking at in this uh, is Daniel had had a couple prophecies, a couple visions with the the strange beasts with weird descriptions and all of that, then the ram and the goat, and we know that those were descriptions of all of the world empires that were going to unfold from the time of Daniel up until the time that Christ comes back and anyway uh, as a result of those two different things uh, the ram and goat vision and the beast vision uh, Daniel had suffered quite a bit in body by that time he was up in probably his 80s and uh, the first one uh, that he seen had made him uh, made him troubled in spirit the second one made him uh, physically ill he was uh, sick for several days, and then he recovered and uh, went about doing his business and whatnot. And so what we looked at last week in Daniel chapter number nine was it began with a prayer that Daniel prayed. Daniel identified himself with the, the Jewish people, and he was confessing their sins, and he was uh, begging God for his mercy and his deliverance on the people of Israel. And what had kicked that prayer off for him, what had uh, caused him Uh, to pray so fervently as he was studying the scriptures, he was studying the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, and he found in Jeremiah's writings that this uh, time of exile in Babylon was to last for 70 years. And at the time that he prayed this, they had been in exile for about 66 years. And so they were coming up on the 70th year, time was about done, And the people of Israel weren't any closer to God than when they went into Babylon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jeremiah had said, you're going to be there for a while. Don't fight against it. Go and build houses and marry wives and have children. And don't diminish while you're in the land, but increase while you're in the land. And so whenever they got into Babylon, they decided, well, we have the protection of the Babylonian empire. We don't have to seek after God. We have things made pretty well here. We have uh, quite a bit of freedom here. We have all the things that we need. We don't really even need to go back to Israel. And so their their hearts weren't turned back to God as Daniel had hoped that they would. And so Daniel's looking around and he says, the people haven't gotten any closer to turning back to God. He looked at the leadership at the time of uh, Babylon, whatever, it came under the hand of the Persians, and it didn't seem like they were anywhere close to letting them go back and re-inhabit Israel. And so he looked at the prophecy, and he said, I, I believe what your word says, God. I believe Jeremiah's prophecies, but I don't see how it's going to happen. And so he prays on their behalf, and he wants uh, God to do a few things here. But his prayer that he prayed focused on four different things. And this is what we looked at last week. I don't know if I had it quite uh, this well thought out. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, last week he looked at... Uh, Israel's sinfulness as he was praying, and he was confessing their sins and all of their iniquities and their transgressions, several different things he brings out. And he was proclaiming God's righteousness. He says, God, we deserve to be judged. We deserve everything that we are getting. We deserve to be in captivity. You made a promise Uh, and you said what the consequences was going to be if the people didn't obey and didn't keep up their end of it, and we didn't obey, and we deserve what we've gotten, you are righteous. But he also was concerned with God's name and with God's testimony. He said Israel and Jerusalem is God's land, and the Jews are God's people, and since the the land lays desolate, and the people are in captivity, there is no one to testify of the name of God for all of the, the heathen nations, all of the Gentiles, would be looking at the Jews and saying, their God must not be much. They would compare their God with all of the other gods that was around and saying, apparently the gods of the Babylonians is stronger than the gods of the Jews, and that's why the Jews are in captivity to them. And so he is concerned with God's name, his testimony, his reputation amongst the heathen. And so he says, God is, As long as the land lays waste, that it is a reproach upon us and upon your name. And so his fourth thing that he was concerned about was the Gentiles knowing God. Mm -hmm. He says, the way that we have represented you is not accurate. The way that we have represented you has not properly portrayed who you are. But if we continue to abide in Babylon, there is no testimony to the Gentiles. How are they ever to know you? How are they ever to properly understand who the true and living God is? And so he begs God to deliver them and to uh, restore them to the land, even though they were unworthy, even though they didn't deserve it, because God was righteous, because God was merciful, and because God had promised. He had told them, right? And he knew that God was a God of his word. And that's one thing that we can do as we read through Scripture, as we understand the word of God. You can hold God to his promises. Right. If he has made a promise in his word, uh, if he's made a promise to you in his word. don't start trying to claim the Jews' promises, okay? <laughs> but if, if he has made a promise to you in his word, then you can hold him to it. Right? Say, God, your word says this, and I pray that you would do this. Mm-hmm. Right? This is what Daniel's doing. And so anyway, uh, Daniel pleaded for mercy so God's name wouldn't be run down because of the captivity of Israel, because of the condition of the people. And so today we're going to see Daniel receive another prophecy. It's not in the form of a vision. God sends an angel to Daniel and just lays it out before him and says, here it is. Makes it pretty plain. So I like it whenever it's plain like that. We don't have to worry about weird beasts and trying to figure out what they are and this horn and this head and this wing and this animal. And So he just lays it out before him. But anyway, um, Jeremiah's prophecy is just about to be fulfilled. And so since Daniel understood the prophecy, since it's about to be fulfilled, uh, God sees fit to reveal something new to Daniel. Okay? And this is what we'll be looking at. Uh, the prophecies Daniel had received so far were political in nature, and they focused on Gentile power, the Medes and the Persians, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, right? the antichrist, different things. And so they were political in nature. They focused on Gentile prop, uh, power. And so this prophecy today is going to address Daniel's concerns about the future of the Jews. And it's going to be more spiritual, more religious in nature, because Daniel's looking at this and he's saying, okay, God, you have showed me these visions about Gentile world powers from now until the Messiah comes. And it seems like the Jews are still going to have a rough road between now and then. As I'm looking at the Jews that I'm around, uh, it doesn't look like there's much hope for them. What's going to happen to us? Okay, this is Daniel's concern. And so God shows Daniel through the, the angel Gabriel what is going to happen to the Jews. Okay, and that's what we're looking at tonight. So Daniel chapter number 9, verse number 20. And there's only eight verses left. We'll go ahead and read to the end of the chapter. And it says, And whilst I was speaking and praying... And confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation, and he informed me, and talked with me, and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, The commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter, and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, and upon thy holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision of the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, uh, unto the Messiah, the prince uh, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be or shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war uh, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice of the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Okay, so as we read this, uh, I said that the angel comes to him and just tells him straight, right? And after I read all that, do you know any more than whenever I started? <laughs> Not so much, right? Okay, so what we look at here, uh, last week I went into the judgment of the Jews, which led to the 70-year captivity. And I uh, Jennifer was online. Anna probably went back and listened to it. Mary was here, so you all probably remember some of this. But anyway, they had been instructed to demonstrate faith by keeping a Sabbath uh, every seventh year. Okay, that was one of the one of the laws, one of the commands gave to the Jews. Six years you uh, sow and you uh, reap and you plant and you harvest and do all those. On the seventh year, it is a Sabbath. You let the ground lay fallow. And you don't plant, you don't reap, you don't pick, you don't so you don't do any of that. And the promise of God was, if you trust me, if you believe by faith, and you keep the seventh year Sabbath, I will give you an abundance so that you have more than enough to make you through that seventh year until you reap and you harvest on the eighth year. Right. Not only that, I will protect you from your enemies, I will give you victory, I will prosper you because that you have obeyed, because you have exercised faith in me. Okay? And so for 70 Sabbath cycles, 70 times times 7 years, uh, so 490 years, the Jews had not kept that 7th year Sabbath. So God says you're going to be carried away into captivity uh, one year for every Sabbath you didn't keep. And then during that 70 years that you're carried away captive in captivity, then the land is going to lay fallow, and then it gets to keep its Sabbath that you didn't give it. So basically, God tells the Jews, either you choose to do it, or I will have you carried away, and the land will still have its Sabbath. Okay? And what a great deal that would have been to have one year holiday out of seven. Yeah. I mean, that would be wonderful. And God says, you take one year holiday out of seven, I'll pay for it. And they didn't trust him. They didn't take him up on it. They didn't uh, take that seventh year off. And so God says, okay, you're going into captivity to Babylon, and the land will rest for 70 years. Okay? And uh, Daniel had understood this. He referred back in the first part of chapter 9, to the laws of Moses that they had broken. That was one of them, okay? And I went back and I reviewed that last week. And so this vision that he received this time is in light of the prayer that he was praying. In the first few verses that I read this evening, Daniel was still praying this prayer when the angel came. And so if we're taking the context for the vision that is being given from the prayer that Daniel was praying, we're understanding where Daniel's mind was at, okay? Okay. Everybody still with me? This is where Daniel's mind was at, was the judgment on Israel because they hadn't kept this Sabbath, and so they were in for 70 years into captivity, okay? And that's all going to come into play here in just a minute. But anyway, with this dream, or not this dream, this vision that Daniel gets, uh, it's revealed to him another uh, 70 years. Not 70 years, but 70 weeks. So we're still around the the, the idea of 70, okay? Right. And that's kind of a relation between the two of these. And we're going to get into the timing in just a minute. But first, uh, I just want to go down through a few thoughts on this, and then we'll get into the, the actual prophecy. But in verses 20 and 21, Daniel didn't only pray for himself. He made intercession for his people. And we find that Daniel was a man after God's own heart. He's one of only about three people in the Scripture uh, that could take that title. Right. Okay? Uh, He's one of the only uh, three in Scripture where the Bible never records anything negative about. Right. Okay? He's a main character that that the Bible never records anything negative about. The other ones would be Jesus and Joseph. Right? But anyway, he has this burden for his people. He doesn't say, they're wicked, but I'm righteous. He says, I have sinned and they have sinned. And he is confessing their, or his, his sins as well as their own. Uh, verse 20, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. And so he is coming to God in prayer for his people and for his land. He loves the people of Israel. He loves Jerusalem. Okay. And God does too. These are God's chosen people. This is the land that God has chosen to place his name upon. This is the people he has chosen to represent himself. And so as he is praying this prayer, his prayer is very close in tune with the heart of God, okay? And so while he's still praying, it says the angel came and Daniel notes that it was at the time of the evening oblation, okay? And at this time, We covered last week. At this time, the captivity had been some 66 years. Daniel was an old man. Daniel had spent uh, four-fifths of his life in Babylon. Okay? He had been in Babylon the majority of his life. He would have been a teenager whenever he first came into the land. And so this idea of the time of the oblation is interesting to me. Okay? Because the temple has been destroyed for decades. The sacrifices had ceased decades prior whenever Jerusalem was ransacked and was destroyed and the people carried away into captivity, right? But Daniel in captivity is still keeping track and ordering his life according to the things that were supposed to be happening at the temple. So from the time that he was a teenager all the way up to the time he's in his 80s probably, every day he is conscious of the fact that this is the time that the sacrifices were meant to be happening. This is the time the priest was meant to be doing this. And so whenever the angel came to him, he was aware of the fact that this was the time of the evening oblation. That would have been about three in the afternoon. That was whenever the priest would go in and offer up the sin offering and the other things that went along with that offering. And so apparently God was also conscious and aware, even though it wasn't going on in Jerusalem, God was still conscious and aware of it because this is when the angel showed up, right? And something else interesting about this, this is the same time that about 500 years later that Jesus would be on the cross saying, it is finished and giving up the ghost because the Lord died at about three in the afternoon, right? Right as that sacrifice where the sins of the nation was being slaughtered in the temple, Jesus was dying on the cross. See how these things tie together? And so this uh, this vision is being revealed to him at this time. In verse number 22, it says, And he informed me and talked with me and said, oh Daniel, I am now come to give thee skill and understanding. Daniel had been studying the scriptures. He had been seeking to understand them, to know what was going on, and had spent his life serving God, obeying God, and seeking God. And God says, I'm going to give you a sneak peek. I'm going to give you a preview. I'm going to entrust you with extra knowledge and information that you're not going to find by studying out the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying that today, if you're a real good Bible scholar, that God's going to give you extra revelation. No, Daniel's a prophet, okay? But anyway, uh, God was going to give him knowledge not found, Um uh, in what was written, as well as understanding, in order to comfort his heart. Because remember, the things that had been revealed to him already were troubling to him. He was seeing wars and changing of empires and the Gentiles oppressing the Jews. He was seeing the things such as the Antichrist and Antiochus Epiphanes overrunning the Jews and slaughtering the Jews and chasing the Jews, and he was burdened for them. And so he's looking at this and saying, God, is there any hope for the Jews? They're still living in sin. They're still in captivity. You've revealed there's going to be all these guys in the future chasing after them. What about my people? And so from the heart of Daniel, loving the people of Israel, loving the land of uh, Israel and the city of Jerusalem, God says, let me give you some extra knowledge, some extra wisdom, some extra information that is going to bring you peace and bring you comfort. And so in verse number 23, it says, At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came. So as soon as you started praying, God called me to send me to you. We don't know how long Daniel had been praying. doesn't say. But with whatever it was, the angel came with haste as soon as Daniel began praying and came before Daniel was done praying. It's a quick answer to prayer, isn't it? It says, At the beginning of thy supplication... The commandment came forth, so before you even prayed it, I was coming. That's interesting, right? Mm -hmm. God's already putting things in work to answer his prayers and to bring him comfort before he's even prayed the prayer, just whenever he started praying. And we can apply that to our lives and see how God cares and that he works out the choices, (laughs) right? Anyway, Back to what we were doing here. Verse 23. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Now, I can't read over that without pausing and thinking for just a minute, okay? Imagine an angel coming to you and saying, God sent me directly to you in response to your prayers and the cares and concerns of your heart because you are beloved of God. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Once again, very few people in Scripture gets that distinctive. Uh, John kind of claims it for himself, saying he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I've said before, I think all the other disciples would come to him and probably argue with him about that. But they'd probably argue about a lot of things. Uh, But anyway, we find that there's the ones that were such as David, a man after God's own heart. He was someone who God loved, right? Uh, And we found even that whenever Jesus was ministering, he was... uh, talking to the rich young ruler, it says that he looked upon him and he loved him, right? But I think there's a little bit of a difference between Jesus looking on him and loving him and Daniel being beloved of the Lord. But if you look at Daniel's life, Daniel's life was characterized by faithfulness, by love, by obedience, by trust in God, right? All of Daniel's life was ordered by the fact that he had faith in God. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please him, right? And so from very early on in Daniel's life, he says, I believe God, I believe his word, and I'm going to do what God says, no matter what happens to me, even if I get thrown to the lions. And God looks down on Daniel and he says, I like that boy, right? Right? The way that he's living his wife, the way that he loves me and it's evident, the way he trusts me and is willing to put everything in me, he's a special one. And it's not because of the works that he done. It's not like, oh boy, Daniel, he's really performing well. It's no, he loves me and he trusts me. That's what endeared Daniel to God. And so that should be an encouragement to us. It's not because Daniel faced the lions It's not because he stood before these other guys. It wasn't because he prayed so many prayers or he did so many things, but it was because he loved and trusted God. And the Bible tells us that if we draw nigh unto him, he draws nigh unto us. How was he beloved of God? God was beloved of him, right? And so the angel comes to him, and I just think this would be awesome to hear. I mean, it'd be something for an angel to come. Just something, a thought that just entered my head now you all can parse it out if you see what you think of it. But what's the typical reaction whenever someone is in the presence of an angel in the Bible? <clears throat> They're afraid. I don't see that here. I just thought that was neat. That was a thought that just came to my mind. But anyway, there was no fear there. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear, right? And so he says you are beloved Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. And so we get into this vision that he has. Uh, And in this vision, it gives us a time, a people, and a a purpose. Excuse me. A time, a people, and a purpose. And that's going to be our focus tonight. Uh, We'll look at the time last. And so the people that this is to, uh, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people... And upon thy holy city. So the angel is addressing Daniel. Who is his people? The Jews. Who is or what is the holy city? Jerusalem. So this prophecy is going to be centered around the Jews and Jerusalem. That's simple enough, isn't it? The Jews and Jerusalem. And so a people and a land. And so this tells Daniel, and it tells us. That God is not done with the people of Israel. That was one of Daniel's concerns, wasn't it? I'm looking at my people. They're still in captivity. They're not repenting. I don't see a whole lot of hope for them. God, please have mercy on them. I don't know what's going to happen to them. And so God says, 70 weeks is determined for thy people and thy holy city. So I've got a time frame. I've got a plan. I'm going to work something out for this people and for Jerusalem. I'm not done with them yet. And as we go down through this prophecy, we find that this prophecy reaches all the way until the Lord returns and he is king. And so God is not done with Israel ever. He's not done until Jesus comes back and rules and reigns over them from Jerusalem, right? And so what that tells us is there are people today who believe that the church has replaced Israel There are people today who believe that God's done with Israel. There's much anti-Semitism because they think that God hates Israel, and that's not the case. In this prophecy, if we're going to read any of the Bible literally, we've got to read this literally. And whenever God says, I've got a plan for this city and for this people, and it's going to reach to the very end, that means that even today... Whenever it seems that the, the Jews have rejected the Messiah, they want nothing to do with the Son of God, they have rejected His means of salvation, it looks as if they are separated from God and that God's not doing anything with them. Uh, today, as we know that the Lord is working through the church, it almost seems as if they have been replaced, but we find that they have been set aside for a season, but He's not done with them yet, Okay. And so anyway, <clears throat> this prophecy is about the Jews in their land as well. And you'll notice if you look through history just a little bit, that the Jews haven't always possessed their land, right? And we're going to find that uh, that's going to be important here in just a minute in this prophecy. But the next thing I want to look at is the purpose. So we've looked uh, at the people. Now look at the, looking at the purpose, uh, Daniel repeatedly referenced the Jews' rebellion. Uh, you can see that in verse number nine. Uh, Though we have rebelled against him, uh, verse 10, neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord. If you don't obey the voice of the Lord, you're rebelling against him, right? So is the Jews' rebellion, their transgression, verse 11, yea, all Israel have transgressed, right? And then we find uh, he addresses their iniquity in verse number 13. Uh, We, uh, may we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. And then talking about their sin and uh, those kind of things as he's going through his prayer in the first half of this chapter. And so as we come down Uh, to verse number 24 that we've been on, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression. So what is Daniel praying about? He says, God, we are sinful. We are rebellious. We are in iniquity. We continue to transgress. All these things are going on, God. We are still against you. Is there still a place for you? Are we still in your plan? And so he says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy day, or thy holy city, excuse me, to finish the transgression. So that means to end it, right? Something's finished it's ended, right? Daniel says, we're continuing in transgression. And the Lord's saying, that's going to come to an end. Okay? And to make an end of sins. Well, that's a good one too, right? And to make reconciliation for iniquity. Okay, iniquity is the the wickedness of the people and to make reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Okay, bringing back, bringing together, right? Mm -hmm. If you've had a fallen out with someone, if there is a relationship that's been severed, then you need to be reconciled, be brought together, right? And so he says, all of the iniquity that has come between you and God, there is going to be a reconciliation, and this is regarding Israel and the land, right? And so transgressions are going to come to an end, sin's going to be done away with, and all the iniquities are going to be reconciled. You're going to get those out of the way so you can come back to God. And to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to appoint the most holy, or not to appoint, anoint the most holy, excuse me. And so in verse number 24, in the second half, Gabriel tells Daniel that God will deal with Israel's sin, and that he's going to bring it all to an end, and he's going to make a means of reconciliation between them and God. All that was done in Christ, okay? He made an end of sin. He brought an end to transgression. He made a way of reconciliation, But Israel rejected it as a nation, right? We understand that, don't we? They rejected it. They didn't accept him as the Messiah. There were Jews that were saved, but by and large, the nation rejected him. And so whenever Jesus returns, the Jews will be cured of their rebellion. That's going to be solved, too, because of the tribulation, because of the Antichrist. And whenever Jesus comes back to rule and reign as the Messiah, they will be ready to accept him then. There's a process that he has, because remember, all of the 70 weeks is God dealing with his people. And so whenever he returns, the Jews will be uh, will be cured of their rebellion through the tribulation. They'll accept him, and they'll accept his recon- reconciliation. And so that's the theme of this prophecy. That's the end of it and what it's leading to. And so that event at the end of the, the 70 weeks that we see here, will bring everlasting righteousness. The very last half of this verse here. Uh, It will bring everlasting righteousness. It will complete or it will seal up all prophecy. Okay? There's lots of prophecy left unfulfilled. At the time whenever Jesus comes to rule and reign, it will be fulfilled. He's going to tie up all the loose ends. There will not be one prophecy left unfulfilled. He will uh, complete every jot, every tittle of the word of God. And then... Um, it will put Jesus as his rightful place on the throne, and we see that at the very end, and to anoint the most holy. That's Jesus. And so what is this 70 weeks about? It's going to take care of the sinfulness of God. Or not, pardon me, that's blasphemy. The sinfulness of God's people. There you go. It's going to take care of the sinfulness of God's people. It's going to reconcile them with God. It's going to do away with all of sin, and it's going to put Jesus as his rightful place on on the throne. And so with all of that being done, it would have been a great comfort to Daniel. Remember, he was troubled at the thought of the Gentiles dominating. Remember the time of the Gentiles we talked about? He was troubled by the uh, domination of the Gentiles and because of the sin of the Jews. So God told him it would only last for a little while and God already knew how it was all going to go. He had it under control. And in the end, sin would be vanquished. The Lord would have reign. And that would have been a great comfort in the heart of a weary prophet. In other words, he was telling him, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, right? So he says, don't worry about all these Gentiles and all of the different kingdom that's going about. God's going to deal with the people for a time. There's going to be some trouble along the way, but in the end, sin's going to be done away with. The people are going to be reconciled to God, and the Lord is going to reign. And that's what he's wanting, right? He said, what about my people? God's going to take care of their sins, their iniquities, all those things that you're concerned about. God will deal with that, and then he'll reign over them. So great news, right? And it's great news for us as well, because we can take in that. We can see that it folds into what we know and the New Testament and the church age and about the Lord's return and about his promise that he's going to prepare a place and he's coming again to receive us into himself, right? All these different things we study, it goes together with these promises to the Jews. And so now what we get to is the time. And I believe that this is the fun part, if I can relate it properly. I don't want to be dry. I don't want to be boring in this. This is interesting because Daniel presents a prophecy in this passage that we just read, that is so precise that there is no way whatsoever that anyone besides God revealed it to him, okay? And what he's going to end up doing here, and we'll see this here in just a minute, is he is going to pinpoint the day from Daniel's time, he's going to pinpoint the day that Jesus would be cut off. That's pretty cool, isn't it? to the day can you imagine daniel prophesying something like that accurately to the day then the question that naturally comes is how did the jews miss it right there are many uh, many of the jewish scholars that discourage people or discourage jews from reading these passages this is one of the the most attacked books or it used to be one of the most attacked books of the bible because of how accurate it is and how persuasive it is. This is why it was often said that it wasn't actually written by Daniel, that it was written much later, and we've talked about that in the past. But here's the thing, it was written by Daniel. It was inspired by God, God breathed, and it was accurate to the day. And so what we see here in verse number 24, Gabriel said 70 weeks. We know they're not literal seven-day weeks, right? Because that would have been less than a year and a half after Daniel wrote it. That would have been a long time ago, right? But what we need to realize is that in this passage, in the original language, that weeks meant sevens, groups of seven. Okay, And the context that I was getting into at the very beginning of this, uh, at the seven years and the seven-year Sabbaths and the 490 years that the people didn't let the land lay foul or didn't keep the Sabbath, and the seventy years that they were going to be in captivity all flow in to this prophecy, and so these sevens are sevens of years, and the context determines that as well as its fulfillment that we've seen so far, the way that history has uh, unfolded, and so in verses twenty-five through twenty-seven, these weeks are. Expounded upon. They're told a little bit more about. So, verse number 25 know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Okay, so we have a beginning and ending point of this time frame. The beginning point is whenever there is a commandment for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. At the uh, end of verse number 25, it says the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So what part of Jerusalem is going to be commanded to be rebuilt? This is an easy one. I just said it. Hmm. Nope. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in trouble's time. So what is being rebuilt? The, hmm? the wall. Okay. The okay, it's going to be the wall. It's going to be the streets of Jerusalem. Okay, and the reason why I'm making a, a deal about this is that it's not from the command to rebuild the temple. The temple is not in sight in this prophecy. Okay? Because some people try to go from the command to rebuild the temple back in Ezra's day. And try to make that the starting point. It doesn't say whenever the command to rebuild the temple goes out. It says from the time the command to rebuild the city, even the streets and the wall. And so when is that command? When does that command go out? Well, we find that in Nehemiah chapter number two. Nehemiah gets word from Jerusalem and he says, what's the condition of the city? Well, the temple's already been rebuilt, but the people are living amongst the rubble. The walls are knocked down and the streets are burnt and they lie waste. Walls are burnt with fire, it says, right? There's so much rubble that they can't even get around the the streets in the city. And so Nehemiah asks the king and he says, uh, I petition you, let me go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he has given permission to go back and rebuild the walls, which they do in 52 days but that's just the beginning. And then for a long time, Nehemiah is still over the city, and he is still helping to rebuild the city. And it takes a long process to rebuild all of the destruction that had happened there. From this prophecy, uh, we can gather that it was about 49 years to rebuild the city. Why? Because it says that there's seven weeks, seven weeks of years, seven times seven, 49 years. Okay. And then it says on top of that, after the streets and the walls were rebuilt, another 60 and two weeks were determined. And then it says the Messiah would be cut off. So if you take the beginning date, the time that the the order was given out to rebuild the city, to the time that the Messiah was cut off, it was to be 69 weeks or 69 times 7 years which is 483 years. Okay? So we have a time frame, right? And so wouldn't it be great if we could go back in time and go back throughout history and figure out the dates on these things? Which, guess what? I'm not that good at it, but other people are. And so people who are much smarter than me have went back and they figured out the dates from uh, things that are given in Scripture. Nehemiah talks about When it was, he came before the king, right? There are plenty of things that dates and gives times and different things, which month it was given, which day of the month, okay? And so, scholars believe that this commandment to rebuild would have been on March the 14th of 445 B.C. It's a long time ago, isn't it? 2,500 years ago. March 14th, 1445 B.C., and so, 483 prophetic years. The reason I say prophetic years is they were going by a solar calendar, and their years were 360 days. How many days are in our year? 365. Unless it's a leap year, so every four years <laughs> you have an extra day, right? Yeah. So, uh, scholars have went from this date of March 14, 445 B.C., and they have went 483... 360-day years, and it would bring you to a date of April the 6th, 32 AD. So the spring of 32 AD, does that sound interesting, familiar? A little bit, maybe? That would have been the week of the Passover feast. It would have brought you to the day of the triumphal entry, whenever Jesus rode into town on a donkey, whenever they all laid their coats out before him and he went up to the temple and cleansed the temple. That was the day that the Jews rejected him as their Messiah. And so from the time that the order for the temple to be rebuilt, or not the temple, excuse me, the city to be rebuilt, to the time that the Messiah was to be cut off, falls right on the day that the Jews rejected Jesus. And within a couple days after that, Jesus would be crucified. He would be cut off. Now, I will put out there that there is some disagreement. Some people say that it would have happened a year later. And the date that they calculate would have still put them in the middle of the Passover week in the following year. And so that would have put Jesus being crucified either... uh, 32 or 33 AD. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And Daniel reveals this to the people. God reveals it to Daniel and calculates it to the day. Wouldn't it have been great if some of those Hebrew scholars that were so busy uh, telling you how to keep the Sabbath day holy were minding their prophecy and they would have been saying, expect the Messiah to be cut off today. Right, And so they said 69 weeks, 69 times seven years, and the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. That's interesting as well. He's cut off, but not for himself. He didn't die for himself, did he? He died for the sins of his people. And so anyway, let me see here. After the death of the Messiah, God's countdown clock was paused. And we'll see that here in just a minute in this prophecy. Verse number 26. After three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come. Who's the prince that shall come? Antichrist. Notice that the P on prince is not capitalized, right? But if you go up to verse 25, unto the Messiah, the Prince, peace capitalized, right? Messiah, the Prince, that's talking about Jesus. The Prince that shall come, not Jesus, that's the Antichrist. And so it says, the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city. What city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And the sanctuary, that's the temple. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. That idea of the flood is an overpouring. So after the Messiah was cut off, the Jews continued for a little while, but God had then, uh, in a way, turned his back on them. He had put them on a shelf. He had set them aside for a time. And so in 70 AD, the Romans, the people of the Antichrist, that's how we know that the Antichrist is going to come out of the Roman Empire. Okay, And so anyway, the Romans came and... Knocked down the temple, burnt the city, but they left part of the people still there. They left some of it behind, and the Jews were constantly causing trouble for the Romans. So in uh, 132, I believe it is, let me look here, I've got it written down, uh, AD 132, it was the time of the Kokba Rebellion, the Romans came in and completely overran the city overflowed it as a flood, left it till there wasn't one stone left up on another, ran all of the Jews out of Israel and out of Jerusalem, and made it illegal for them to be there. The Jews could not inhabit the land. It was punishable by death if they entered into the land. They were completely put out after 132 AD by the Romans. So whatever it says here, the, prince, uh, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood. By the way, the prince shall come. Future tense. He's not there yet. He shall come. And then it says, and unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. So the Messiah has been cut off at the end of the 69th week. We still have one more week left to go, right? The Messiah has been cut off. The Antichrist is still future tense. And unto, that means throughout the time, throughout the duration until, right? That, uh, let me see. War and desolations are determined. So the temple is going to lie waste. (coughs) The people are going to be out of the land. War is going to be constantly... A theme for that people and for that land until the end, right? And then we come down to verse 27. We get to the final week. We get to the end. Verse 27, And he, who's he? <clears throat> the prince that shall come, right? The prince that shall come. And he shall confirm the covenant with many, For one week, so remember there's war and desolation, now there's going to be a covenant. This is a peace treaty. He's going to confirm for one week, one group of seven years, right? And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice of the oblation to cease. So what does this tell Daniel? At this time, after the temple has been left desolate, after the city has been flattened, that now all of a sudden we find that the oblation, the sacrifices, the temple is back up and running, right? So sometime in between, the temple is rebuilt, the sacrificial system begins again. But it's in the midst of that week, halfway through that seven years, that the sacrifice and the oblation is going to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations... He shall make it desolate. Same language that was uh, referring to the little horn to Antiochus Epiphanes. Whenever he came in to the temple, sacrificed the pig on the altar, and uh, caused the the whole temple to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Defiled. There you go. Caused the whole temple, everything to be defiled. And so that was the abomination that made it desolate, made it defiled. And so the same language is being used here. He says halfway through, you're going to have these sacrifices oblations in the temple in Jerusalem are going to cease because this Antichrist is going to come and do something abominable to desolate the temple. We compare this with what we read about the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. What's he going to do? He's going to set up his image in the temple, and he is going to require everyone to worship right and it says that it's going to be desolate even unto the consummation when's the consummation that's whenever Jesus comes and takes his place as king as rightful heir and ruler and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate and so Whenever the end, the final, whenever Jesus comes as it was determined, then he is going to uh, make everything right. All those things that had been made desolate, he is going to overturn, overthrow, right? So, what this uh, prophecy tells us here is that dealing with the Jews, there was going to be this period of 483 years. They were going to reject their Messiah. And then there was going to be an unknown intervening time, a parenthesis, okay? And sometime during that time, the Antichrist was going to arise. The Jews would rebuild the temple, and then the seventh week would begin. And it was going to begin whenever this treaty was signed, whenever there was a peace treaty with Jerusalem, and that treaty was going to be broken, halfway in the middle of that seven-year stretch. So what does that mean for all of us? We're currently in that parentheses. We're currently between the 69th and the 70th week. Okay? <clears throat> and so all of these weeks that we're looking at is God's dealing with the Jews. Who's God currently dealing through and dealing with? Church. The church. And primarily the Gentiles, right? So, what changes from God's dealing with the church to God's dealing with the Jews again? An important event happens. The church is going, and God, once again, refocuses on His people and the Jews. So, this is one of the reasons why I'm pre-millennial, pre-tribulation. Okay? And so, God is going to take the church out of the way, and then he's going to refocus on the Jews, he's going to allow the Antichrist to come, he's going to allow the Jews to resume their temple worship, all these different things going on, they're going to be excited about it, they're going to think that the Antichrist is the best thing since sliced bread until he reveals his true nature, and he's going to demand to be worshipped, they're going to reject him, he's going to profane the temple and he's going to chase after them, he's going to punish them, he's going to cause all kinds of things to go on there. And he is going to cause the people to the people of Israel to cling fast to God, to return to him. And whenever Jesus comes as the Messiah, they will welcome him with open arms at that time. Okay? And so for Daniel, this is what he's saying: the Jews will eventually get right. They're going to mess up royally before they get right. They're going to cut off their Messiah. But in the end, God is going to deal with them. He's going to uh, finish their transgression. He's going to make an end of their sin. And he is going to cause the, the Holy One to be anointed. But there was a lot to happen in between, right? Daniel and all the Old Testament prophets, they didn't even get a glimpse. They, we didn't even come on the radar for the church age. The church was a mystery, something that wasn't previously revealed. And we are currently in that time. So God has dealings with the Jews in the future. And we'll get a front row seat in the glories of heaven watching all of it unfold. But they've still got seven years. And through that seven years, God is going to use that to turn them to himself. And then usher in his kingdom age. So we see all that going on here. And with that... That's all I've got for tonight. Does anyone have any questions or any comments or anything to add on this? I find the fulfillment of the prophecy, how it brings it right to Jesus' day, that should be a huge faith builder for us. We look at God's word and say, man, that's that's incredible that God does that, right? We look at God's plan for the end and the old saying, I've read the back of the book and we win, right? That's an encouragement. Because we're kind of in the same place as Daniel. We look around and say, God, I don't see anything good coming out of this. It doesn't look like you're in control. And God looks at us and says, just wait. That's why he told Daniel, right? Anything? Okay, then let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll call tonight, dear Lord. We come to you today. Thank you for your Word, Lord. I thank you for all the things that we see in your Word and we learn from your Word and how encouraging it is to us, Lord. Knowing uh, uh, how reliable it is, how dependable it is, and not only that, but seeing what it says about the the end and Lord, even in the chaos that we live in today, Lord. We know that you have a plan and you're working it out. Mm-hmm. And Lord, all these things are going to come to pass. And Lord, we look forward to it. We just ask you, help us to, to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to uh, see Daniel here as an example, Lord, how he was uh, beloved of you. It was because of his love for you, his faithfulness to you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to to love you. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you. Help us to trust you, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you for all you do. And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.